Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. As always, the Greatest Games Podcast is a chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches and barking dogs in the background uh, <laughs> and have them tell us about their greatest games. It could be any game from any time during their coaching career, just one they consider to be their greatest game. Chris, you know, we are all about breaking barriers here, the greatest games. We just, that's what we do. We make history and we are making history once again. We're going back to Mawa, New Jersey, and our first ever college head coach is joining us here on the greatest games from Ramapo College, Coach Chuck McBreen. Welcome to the greatest games podcast. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. And Chris, thanks for having me as well. I look forward to being with you over this next hour. Absolutely. Like Coach Gabriel said, we had to have him first, so he, he bribed us. So that's why we had him before we had you. No, Pat did a great job. I listened to the entire podcast, and, and you guys did a great job, and I was very impressed with how Pat conducted himself and answered the questions. Well, he gives you a lot of credit for that, one of his mentors. So. And you guys have a great relationship, I know, and have done great things up there at Ramapo. Yeah, he's been tremendous for me on my staff. I'm just happy to have Pat. He was super engaging. What a storyteller. And just, I just love all of the, just the bits of him being a high school teacher and now college coach and while still teaching uh, high school. I mean, it's just, it's amazing what he's able to do. And I, like I said, uh, like you just said, he's a, he's an amazing guy. I know he does a great job. And he's job got two beautiful young daughters that are coming up athletes right now that he's trying to coach too. So he's got <laughs> a lot on his plate. I've never seen anybody divide himself so thin. Uh, and he does an amazing job. Uh, I mean, I'm just uh, so blessed to have Pat with me. And enough to have like a 12 or 13 handicap. I don't know. I mean, that's – No, that thing's down at <laughs> 11 now, Chris. That's down at 11. <laughs> I need to take those strokes. I'm at 13. I need to take those two against Gabriel. <laughs> that's what we'll do. We'll have a greatest games golf tournament here once we get – yeah, be... still... So you can socially distance doing that, right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Coach, why don't you take the uh, listeners through your uh, resume in, in coaching basketball? I know you coach various levels, and uh, why don't you take the listeners through that and how you got to where you are today? Okay, well, I got started with my coaching career back in 1988 at my high school uh, and all, North Bergen High School uh, and all. I spent a short time there on, uh, as a freshman coach and then a varsity assistant. Uh, and then uh, from there, I, I moved over in Hudson County to another high school called Weehawken High School. Uh, and Weehawken's in Hudson County, but they play in the BCSL back then in the Bergen County League. And I was the JV coach and a varsity assistant. And I only did that for one year because I was promised that if the head guy left that I would get the job. And in my one and only year and at the JV, we went 17-1 and one in the BCSL and won the championship and went 25-3 and three overall. Uh, and I thought I was set up to be the head coach at Weehawken High School. And unfortunately, they went outside the system. And so uh, I'm not a big fan of people that are not um, keep their word. And so I decided to leave there. And then Union Hill High School, which is in Union City, New Jersey, uh, had an opening for the head varsity basketball coach. Uh, and I put in for it at the time. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get it at age 27. 
So I became a head varsity basketball coach, which is young by most people's uh, standards. And I was at Union Hill. I took over a program that was 3-21. and 21. Uh, And by my second year, we were in a state tournament. Uh, We won – it was either 15 or 16 games. And then by my fourth year, we won uh, 20 games. It was the first time they had won 20 games in 25 years. And at that time, I was looking to get into the college level. And I had some opportunities at Seton Hall and St. Peter's locally. And at the last minute, they didn't pan out. But then I got the opportunity – you know, it's, it's weird how things work in life because I really thought that I was going to get the Seton Hall opportunity. And then I even thought I was going to get an opportunity with Fran Schiller at St. John's. But none of those things worked out. And when, when I got the call from the St. Peter's College uh, head coach that they were going to go in a different direction uh, with, with that hire, they ended up hiring a, a high school freshman coach over me from Hudson County. And I was really disappointed. And it's funny how things work because that night, I got a call from my roommate in college. Now, my roommate in college was a great football player. He was the quarterback at Towson University, and his father was the general manager of the Washington Redskins. His father won two Super Bowls in the 80s. Uh, They had gone to three Super Bowls. His name is Bobby Beathard and was just inducted into the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. So Bobby's son, Kurt, and I were best friends. I was uh, Kurt's best man, and he was in my wedding party, but – Kurt was at Western Carolina University as the offense coordinator uh, for football. And the night that I got the call earlier in the evening that I did not get the St. Peter's job, I was down in the dumps a little bit. I didn't have too long to be in the dumps because about an hour or two later, my phone rang. It was Beathard. And he said there was an opening at Western Carolina. Did I have any interest in coming down there uh, and all? And He couldn't guarantee that I would get the job, but he felt that he was good enough friends with the head coach that he could get me at least an interview. So he said, asked me if I would take the interview, and I said I would. Uh, And also he introduced me to Phil Hopkins, who was the head uh, coach down at Western Carolina. They flew me down, uh, and I don't know how much you know about Western Carolina, but it's in the middle of nowhere in Cullowhee, North Carolina, on the very – southwest end of North Carolina. So the closest airport is Asheville, which is about an hour away, but it's a tiny little airport with like two gates. So, or you could fly into Charlotte, which is two and a half hours away. They, they flew me into Asheville. Coach Hopkins picked me up. We got a chance to talk for an hour on the ride back to Cullowhee uh, and all to Western Carolina University. I spent the whole day there. And at the end of the day, he was extremely impressed with the way the interview went, and he offered me the job. And I, was, I, I wasn't expecting that, so I was very surprised that he offered me on the spot. I just asked him if they would give me a chance to – I was flying back home that night to fly home and talk with my family, discuss the offer that they had given me, and decide if I was going to take it or not. And I, I told him I only needed a day. And I went home. I discussed it with my family. Um, my wife now and I were just started out in a relationship, so we weren't even married yet. Uh, and I had let her know that I was going to leave to take this opportunity. So that's how the Western Carolina opportunity came about. Uh, and I went down to Western Carolina. I was down there a couple of years, uh, and all, um, learned a lot And, and people, you know, don't understand in life that you don't always have to be in the best situation 
in order to learn, you know, a lot. Because you can be in a bad situation and learn a lot of what not to do. You know, there's always ways to learn. It's not always like things that are going on great. It's not like you're at Duke or Villanova or Kansas and everything's wonderful all the time and you're learning from these great guys. You can learn a lot about what things will get you fired and what things don't work and all uh, being, you know, not in such a great situation. So that opportunity, you know, taught me a lot. And then in my second year, I had the Ramapo job opened up and I had an opportunity to come home and family was real important to me. And I really had three situations on the table. I applied at Ramapo. I had gotten in touch with Fraschilla, who I had become very close with, and he had spoke to Joe Mahalik up at Niagara, and there was a restricted earnings position opening up there, but that was the position I was sitting in at Western Carolina. So I could have gone up to, uh, you know, up there to Niagara. I could have stayed at Western Carolina, or if I got offered the Rampo job, I could have taken the Rampo job, and I did get offered the Rampo job. The only problem was that Ramapo job was only part-time. Uh, I was taking over – well, the guy that got fired that opened up – the reason the job opened up, the guy that got fired was 5-20, and 20 and they let him go, and the job was only part-time. It was only a $6,000 job uh, at all. Fortunately for me, when I left for Western Carolina, I took a leave of absence for my teaching position – so I was able to come home, take the Rampo job, get my teaching job back where I could have a full-time salary in teaching, and then run the Ramapo after teaching a full day and then work on trying to build the program. Fortunately for me, in my very first year, I went into the last game of the season, 11 and 12, playing Kane University and Bruce Hamburger with a chance to go 500. And we went in at halftime. We ended up losing by a couple at, at the end of the game. And we finished 11 and 13, which is a, was a six-game improvement from the five and 20 the year before. And they then offered me full-time job at Ramapo. And then the rest is history. I've been now going into my 23rd year right now. So I took that job in '98 uh, at the age of 33. So I was a high school coach at 27. Got into Division One when I was around 30 and 31 for a couple of years, and then got into Division Three and took a head. Uh, D3 job at age 33. And like I said, I just completed my 22nd year and I'm in the start of my 23rd year. So that's pretty much the road that I've been on to get to this point where we're at today. Uh, at all. And so you coached the great Brett Carey, if I'm uh, correct, right, in Western Carolina. Is that right? Love Brett Carey. Great, yeah, yeah. great young man when I got him. Worked extremely hard. I didn't think uh, we did right by him. Uh, as far as playing time goes, I thought that he could do a lot for us. Uh, I loved his work ethic, his practice habits and everything were tremendous. Um, and, you know, I get to see Brett every once in a while out at the Final Four. I go to the, uh, my national convention at the Final Four every year, and I get to see Brett. That's usually when I pop into him. The last I'd see him, he was on the Asheville staff, uh, UNC Asheville, but uh, I don't know if he's still there. But that's where I last, you know, got to see Brett probably a year or two ago. Uh, out at the Final Four, but Brett was great. We actually had a real good team at Western Carolina one of my years, and, and I just felt that we underachieved um, collectively as a staff. You know, I told you before, you can learn a lot from things not to do and all, and I, I just thought the leadership at the top, uh, and, and I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm not appreciative of the opportunity that I was given, but 
uh, it was a great opportunity for me to break into Division One and all. But we we did a lot of things. You know, when you got guys like me that are in the um, facility all day long from 7 in the morning till 11, 12 o'clock at night, just working and working and working, and, and the head coach is not there. And, and, and I have no problem with that if the head coach, you know, has a life and he doesn't want to dedicate it all to basketball. But then he's got to lean on his assistants uh, and all. And I don't think that he utilized me, definitely not what I could bring to the table as far as my work ethic uh, to the capacity to help us win more games than we did. I mean, when I was in there, Davidson, Appalachian State with Buzz Peterson and at College of Charleston with, with uh, Crest were the best three teams. And we were up there. We had the player of the year in the conference. We had a great point guard. And like uh, um, you guys said about Brett, we had some good players and we kind of underachieved in that situation at Western Carolina. But I learned a lot. It was a, a great experience for me. Yeah, you talk about that, that was that was a great league. Like you said, John Crest, Buzz Peterson, really good coaches. Brian and Brett have become really good friends. Brett's at Indiana State now, actually. Oh wow! And, and Brian talks Brian talks to him on a regular basis. Uh, um, what I wanted to ask you, coaches, is tell people um, the advantage of taking advantage of any opportunity. You're you're a Northern Jersey, Hudson County guy and you get this opportunity at Western Carolina, and it sounds like you didn't really hesitate, you know, and some people would be reluctant to make a move like that. Well, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'll give you some specifics at all. Uh, I'll open up about this situation. So I was trying to get, like I said, St. Peter's and Seton Hall and St. John's with Fashilla. I was just trying to latch on uh, in Division One, And Fashilla was somebody that I really respected. Uh, and all, and when I got offered the job, I told you I flew home and I told him I was giving him an answer in a day. And and what what ended up happening was I called for Shilla, and I told him I was offered the job. And he said to me, you know, what is your goal? What do you want to do? And I said, you know, I want to coach college basketball. Uh, and he said, well, you, you you're given you're given this opportunity. I said, yeah, but let's talk the specifics of the job. The restricted earnings job back then was $12,000. I was making $50,000 as a teacher. Uh, I got to take over a $40,000 pay cut uh, and all. So when Fraschilla said, you know, if you really want to be Division One and you got an offer, then you answer your own question. You need to take the offer. I said, Fran, but you're not answering how the bills are going to get paid. I said, the bills, just because I leave state, still go with you. They don't stay in New Jersey. The bills come with you if you have a car payment a phone payment, whatever you have, credit card payments, they still got to get paid. So what I ended up doing is taking out a $30,000 loan while I still had a teaching job to try to get myself through, you know. And, you know, what they did do with the restricted earnings position was they gave me an apartment and a meal card in the cafeteria. So I was eating for free and living for free. Uh, but I had no life there in the uh, sense that I never was in my apartment. I was always at the facility. You know, I stayed at the facility around the clock. I even worked out. I ran at night. I would always go. We had a beautiful Ramsey Center facility that sat about 10,000. I would go for a run every night around the mezzanine. Security would come up every night and say, oh, it's just you, coach, going for a run. And I would be in that building late at night. So, I mean, uh, I ended up taking that opportunity because Priscilla pretty much said, if your goal is to be a college coach and someone's giving you the opportunity, you need to take it. And he wasn't answering the questions about the finances, but 
you know, sometimes in life you got to take a step back in order to step forward. And I wouldn't be in the position I am at Rampo today because the job required college experience. And if I was a high school coach, I wouldn't even been able to apply for a job. So the fact that I had two years at the same time that I uh, interviewed for Rampo, Montclair posted that job the same year that became available as well. Montclair was requiring five years of college experience. So I couldn't even apply for uh, the Montclair state job. And Teddy Fiore took that job. Teddy Fiore applied for Ramapo and Montclair. But fortunately for me, Montclair was full time and Teddy took it and Ramapo was part time and I got offered the job. Because Teddy had all those years of Division One head coach at St. Peter's College. I would have never got the job over Teddy Fiore, but I was lucky that there was two jobs open in the conference. Teddy took Montclair and I got uh, Ramapo, you know, so I was fortunate on how things worked out. And then fortunate that I took a leave of absence and was still able to get my teaching salary back. So I went back to Union City and I taught that year. And then finally the next year, Rampo offered me the job full time and I took the job. And obviously I, you know, then resigned from Union City and I've been at Rampo ever since. You know, Ramapo sounds like a super just special place. And so like growing up here in South Carolina, Walford College was the place for me. I grew up going to basketball camp there with Richard Johnson was the head coach there. Mike Young is an assistant coach and getting there. It was just it just felt like a family. We loved going there as kids. I took a crew up there from Sumter every year. And still to this day, I've still had a soft spot in my spot, soft spot in my heart. I can't get it out about Walford College, even though Mike Young is not there. Coach Johnson's still there as an AD. But I'd love to hear you tell us and our, our listeners about what the culture is like around Ramapo, what's kept you there so long. It just, like I said, it just sounds like a super special place. I'd love to hear more about it. Well, first, before I talk about Ramapo, getting back to Walford, they were in our conference when I played. And that was when they were just, like, coming in – they weren't very good back then, and they've come on strong over the last 10 or 15 years uh, under coach. Uh, so, and he left and took uh, – what was the job that he, he got? Virginia, Virginia Tech. Tech. Yeah, I mean, he did such a great job there. He got that Virginia Tech job when Buzz left. But uh, getting back to Rampo, I never envisioned – you know, I had an AD who – assistant AD, I should say, who was the head coach at LIU for 20-something years. And him and I used to talk. I used to use his experience and lean on him for advice. And he said, never stay in one place for too long. Try to get in and out of there within four or five years and move on. So early in my time at Ramapo, I had turned this thing around. And in my second year, we came out of the gate 11-2. and two. And nobody expected that from us. Uh, and all. And unfortunately, we got hit with the injury bug. I had 15-man roster. And from the end of January to the end of February, the whole last month, we only had six guys suit up for practice and games. Went down from 15 down to six. Our practices were three-on-threes uh, and all. Uh, but like I said to you earlier, in that class, that was my best class ever. I ended up with three All-Americans and a pretty good 6'8 center in Kevin Stokes. Uh, so we had a great recruiting class in that changed the history of Rampo basketball forever. But like I said, I didn't envision myself staying there. In my, it was either my third or fourth year at Rampo, I really had started to get this thing going. And my president that hired me at uh, Ramapo uh, left and had taken the president's job at Adelphi, a Division II school in New York. And at the time, Jimmy Ferry had Adelphi as a national power they had gone to back-to-back final eights in Division II. And as a result, Jimmy Ferry took the LIU job. 
And when Jimmy Ferry took the LIU job, uh, the president, Bob Scott, that hired me at Ramapo, called me up and discussed me coming to Adelphi with that job. And, and at the time, Adelphi coach was making less than me. He had less money for assistance than I did. The drive to Garden City without any traffic in Long Island, if I wasn't going to move, which I wasn't with my family at a nice house in Bergen County, uh, to make that commute every day would have been at least an hour. I would have been paying tolls. I wouldn't have been able to bring any of my assistants. I would have had to get assistance over from over in New York. And I'm not saying they wouldn't have done a good job, but one of the biggest uh, uh, aspects for me in hiring assistants is loyalty uh, and all. So, you know, I want guys that are loyal to me and understand the culture that I build and are all into it 100%. And so uh, I did not take the Adelphi job. And then, you know, a few years later, as we started to win, put 20 on the board, in, in my fifth year, we went to the final eight. We lost by two to get to the final four to Wooster out in Wooster, Ohio. And, and then two years later, we got right back into the Sweet 16 uh, and all. And so we had it moving. And then I interviewed at St. Peter's College. And the bizarre part about that, it was I was called by uh, somebody, one of the alums, that I was going to be hired at a press conference on a Monday. It was on a Thursday. I had gotten a call, and they told me that I was going to be hired at a at a, a, a press conference on Monday. And so I went down to Ocean City, Maryland, for the weekend to play some golf. And on Sunday, I'm on a tee box, and my phone rings. It's that same alum telling me that the plug has been pulled. And I said, what do you mean it's been pulled? They said, well, you're out. You're not getting a job. And I said, how did this all go down? And at the time, they had a guard named Keedron Clark, who was one of the leading scorers in the country. And I think he's either seventh or eighth in NCAA history in scoring. And he was going down to Portsmouth for a tryout uh, down there. And when they went down there with the AD, the coach, and, and Keedron Clark, Lewis Orr was down there and had just gotten fired at Seton Hall. They had offered the job to Lewis Orr. And Lewis Orr said, you know, I'm, I'm making a half a million at Seton Hall. I'm not going to. St. Peter's for under 100000 Why don't you hire my assistant, John Dunn? He's out of a job. And next thing you know, the plug was pulled on me, and John Dunn got the job. So I was almost out of Rampo, you know, once with Division Two, once with Division One, uh, and all. And before you knew it, we had started to build the national power uh, where we were ranked in the top 25, 13 of the last 17 years. And, you know, the years have piled up. And then as I started to get into my mid-40s, you know, I had one more opportunity at FDU where I almost got the FDU job uh, and all. And then since then, these last 10 years, I've just decided they made me the assistant athletic director. And I decided that, you know, so many great things have happened here for me. And I guess this was my calling and this is where I'm supposed to be. So I haven't pursued another job in the last 10 years. Uh, and, you know, this is where I'm going to retire from. So Round Post has been great to me. They built a beautiful 2,000-seat Bradley Center Arena, $28 million back in 2004. So I play in one of the best arenas in the country. Academically, we're one of the top schools in New Jersey uh, and all. And like I said, basketball-wise, uh, two of the last three years, we ranked top five in the country and we went to the Final Four. So it's just been a great situation for me. I've been blessed with 
great assistants and, and some great players that we've been fortunate enough to do the things that we do. And it's, it's hard as a state school because the private schools really have a huge advantage over us on the kind of monies that they're giving out, even though they say there's no scholarships at all level, the things that the private schools are doing, they call it a different name, but, uh, you know, you would beg to differ in what, what they're calling it and what it really is. <laughs> well, Brian, uh, Coach talked about uh, just about the school and how special it is, and it's in a really – I know you wouldn't believe this, Brian. Brian's been to central Bergen County where I live, but it's up in northern Bergen County, which are, there's some mountains up there. It's on, it's on a mountain right by a little ski place. It's a beautiful campus. The Bradley Center is the best air-conditioned uh, college basketball arena in America, which is, which is great when we work summer camps because it's well air-conditioned. So that's good for me. It's a beautiful building. I'm looking at pictures right now. We'll put this link in the, in the show notes. I mean, it's, 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 it's first class. I can see $28 million in this building. It's, it's gorgeous. Well, let me, let me give you a little background on the Bradley Center. Okay, back – we had an AD who's now an AD in Division One at um, Hampton University. His name is Gene Marshall. And Gene was here at Ramapo back in the early 2000s. And we were, going, we were moving to Division One. We were in talks with the NEC to move in with FDU, LIU, Robert Morris, Sacred Heart, and so forth in the NEC. So in order to move into the NEC when we were talking with their commissioner and everything, we needed to upgrade the facility. So Gene and the president, uh, Rodney Smith, started a move uh, to have the Bradley Center built. And what ended up happening, we got, and that's why we have a chair back arena where most Division threes are glorified high school gyms with, with bleachers. We have Division One locker room with flat screen TVs. We got 28 wooden lockers like Division One. We have couches in there. You know, we have a beautiful locker room. Uh, we have a beautiful facility, and it was all to make that move into the Northeast Conference. And we had visited a number of the Northeast Conference. Now, LIU got a new facility, but our facility is better than most of the uh, schools in the Northeast Conference now. So we were making that move, and then all of a sudden, Gene Marshall left our AD and went to West Point up at Army, and our president left and went back to Hampton. And the next thing you know, we got a new president, and they put the brakes on going division one. So we were fortunate to have this facility already up and, and built. Uh, but our new AD and our president, they didn't want to commit the money to the scholarships that it takes to be division one, you know, to make that commitment every year. So they pulled the plug on that. So that's, that's how the Bradley Senate came about is we were moving to division one into the Northeast conference. And that's how we got that Bradley center built. It's like I said, it's super, it's super. This is a, again, once we're out of the pandemic and out of quarantine, this is just another stop when I come to New Jersey to be able to stop in and watch a, watch a game in this, in this building and watch you coach. It's going to be, be excited to be able to put myself in that building. So we would love to have you. I appreciate that coach. <laughs> so, all right, coach, you know, the name of the show is the greatest game. So at this point in the show, we just want to hear about, you've got a game or two. We'd love to hear about as much background information as you have about your greatest games. Okay, well, back in 2016-17, we had a great, great uh, team. We ended up going 26-3 and that year. And Pat talked about the buzzer beater that Tommy hit, uh, you know, which was on the top ten plays in the ESPN uh, from half court when we ran the Villanova play that Tommy called in the huddle. Uh, I'm not going to take the credit for it. We called a timeout. 
and Tommy said, let's run the Villanova play, and we ran it. And unfortunately, Tommy's not as fast as Jenkins. He didn't get up the floor. We didn't have as much time as they did, and Tommy could only get lumber, lumbered himself to half court. And we pitched it. Josh Ford made an unbelievable catch on the inbounds pass and pitched it to Tommy, and then Tommy let it fly and, and hit it. Uh, but that team was, was better than the team that went to the Final Four the following year. We had more depth, and we had two athletic kids in Corey Song. Uh, who transferred in from Division II, and Sultan Aminu, who transferred from Division II. But unfortunately, on the buzzer beater, Tommy ends up at the bottom of the pile and gets hurt. And when he gets hurt, he gets real bad hip pointer, and he does not practice the entire week. Now, that game was on a Saturday. We played our first NCAA game on a Friday night. Tommy did not practice on Sunday through Thursday to get ready for that first-round game uh, with Misericordia. And Pat Peterson, uh, our leading scorer off the bench and our sixth man, he did not practice all week either. He was in a walking boot. He got a heel contusion, and he did not practice. So two of our better players and probably our two highest IQ players did not practice all week. We had enough to get by Misericordia in that first round. And in the second round, we faced Keene State, led the majority of the way, needed to get a stop with 20 seconds left. We're up by two. They scored the buzz that went into overtime. We got up by five in the overtime with two and a half minutes to go. And they came back. They took their first lead with 40 seconds to go. And we had a couple of chances in the last 40 seconds. And, and uh, they took the lead by one because we were up by two and they hit a three and they went up by one. It was their only lead in the overtime. And we had several opportunities and did not score. But uh, Tommy and Pat Peterson, neither one of them played well. And, you know, I don't like to make excuses, but I would have liked to play them full strength because they turned around and in the next round in the Sweet 16 beat Christopher Newport, who I thought we would have beaten as well. And then we would have met in the final eight, Babson, who won the – uh, national championship and had the player of the year, Joe Flannery. The only thing that I wanted that play that game so bad, because I think it would have been at our facility since Babson did not have such a good facility. It seats less than a thousand. I think the NCAA would have shipped that game to our site based on our facility. And I would have liked to play that game against Babson, but unfortunately for us, injuries hurt us. And so what, what, what started the next season, and I think Pat might've touched base on this, I knew we had 14 guys coming back from that 26-3 and three team, and I thought we had an opportunity to be very good. And so what I turned around and did was I took our team on a foreign tour to Montreal to get us prepared for this season, for that season. And, and then, you know, we had ups and downs during that season. In fact, we were in the conference semifinal with Montclair State, and we were down 19 with 15 minutes to go. And if we would have lost that game, we would have gone to the bubble and I'm not so sure we would have gotten it. I don't know if we would have even made the tournament. But we came back from 19 down, sent the game to overtime, won it, ended up winning the conference championship, you know, a couple of nights later, got to the NCAAs. We ended up playing Moravian in the first round. Well, when we got the call, we got shipped to uh, Williams in the opening two rounds. And Williams was the – I'm on a national committee for the NCAA that picks the NCAA tournament and so forth. And when you're on a committee and you're in the tournament, they, they don't let you stay on the call. So I was like, when I got the call from them that we're going to Williams, 
I was like, thanks a lot. You know, what are friends for? Uh, you know, like I'm on this committee, this eight-man committee, uh, you know, the highest committee in NCAA basketball. And here I am being shipped to the number one seed. So we played Moravian in the first round. We played extremely well. We beat them by 25, 86 to 61. And then we got a chance to play Williams in the second round. And this is all leading up to that game that we're going to talk about, the greatest game uh, in all. This second game could be based on the fact that we're playing the number one seed on their court. But I'm going to use the game that we get to the Final Four as the greatest game. So I'm going to run us through right now. We go and we play Williams in the second round. Now, when I watched them the first night after we got done beating Moravian, they had some crowd support. And one of the things that I did not like is that their student section is down on the court. They're actually, like, when you're taking the ball out in front of that section, they are in your ear biting on it like they were Tyson versus Holyfield. That's how close they are uh, to you. And I even made a call of my committee to the chair of the national committee to say that they, I didn't think that was fair, that their, their student section should have to stay seated or stand on that first row, not be allowed. And, and what they do is they put a tarp down, and the tarp goes right up to about three feet from the sideline, which gives you the, the three feet to stand behind the sideline, but right next to the tarp. You're in between the tarp and the thing, and on the toes, the person's toes is touching the edge of the tarp. They are right. I mean, you can't be any closer without touching you than they are to you and, and all. So we get ready to play Williams on that second night and all. And in Division Three, it's not like Division One where you play Thursday, Saturday, and if you played on Friday, you play Friday, Sunday. Division Three is Friday, Saturday, all three rounds. The 64 and 32 is Friday, Saturday. The 16 and the final eight is Friday, Saturday. And the final four in the national championship is Friday, Saturday. So we beat Moravian on Friday. We play Williams on Saturday. Unbeknownst to me, first of all, we're up there in a blizzard up in Williams. And un unbeknownst to me, when the game is starting to get close to tip off and we're in the warm-up lines, I'm not seeing the same crowd that I saw the night before. And I am wondering, I mean, this is a second-round NCAA game against two good teams. And I wonder, where are all Williams fans? I come to find out that in the facility right next door is their ice rink. They're a big hockey school, too, and they have a hockey game. And all the fans went to the hockey game. Now, so I said, oh, this is great for, me, for us because I don't need a crowd at the game. I want it to be – you know, we had a lot of fans that went up, and when we say a lot of fans to make the trip, that's 100 people, 150 people. It's not the 1,000 that Williams going to get if they didn't go to the hockey game. So now we got just as many fans as them in the building. And as the game starts to wear on, the, the hockey game starts to filter out, and they start to come over to the, to the basketball game. And we were up by two and a half on uh, Williams, and we're up by six, 58-52 with about five and a half minutes to go. And I'm thinking, okay, we're in a good position here. And all of a sudden, the referees decide to take this thing over. And they score the next seven points. And we're down now 59-58 with three minutes to go. And I'm saying to myself, wow, great season's about to come to an end. You know, there's no way they're going to let us win this game up here uh, and all. And we turn around and we go on an 8-0 run, thanks to our All-American Tom Bonicum. In the game, I'll just give you some numbers for Tommy. Tommy goes out and gets – we scored 66, okay? 
And we're down 59-58 with three minutes to go. We score eight straight points to go up 66-59. Of the 66, Tommy scores 33 of them. He's 11 for 15 from the field in that game of the 33 points. He's six for six from the line, five for seven from the three-point line, okay? Uh, uh, 13 rebounds and three assists in 38 minutes played. He single-handedly – we didn't have another guy in double figures in the game. Put, him, put us on his back and got us through that game. And they hit a meaningless three at the buzzer to score the final three points of the game and lose 66-62. But Tommy single-handedly at Williams, the number one seed, got us through that round. And then there were a few upsets that weekend uh, which allowed us – John Hopkins lost – and maybe Christopher Newport got clipped, which now allowed us to be one of the higher seeds left on our side of the bracket. And we were fortunate enough to get the home games for the Sweet 16 and the Final Eight. We played FNM, which is Franklin and Marshall, who has the all-time win leader in college Division III basketball history in Glenn Robinson, has over 900 wins. And we got the opportunity to play Franklin and Marshall who obviously was well-coached and, and, and a great program. And we won that game by 10 at our place, 72-62 in the final eight to advance to, you know, uh, I mean, in the Sweet 16 to advance to the final eight to play MIT the next night. Now, getting into now this greatest game against MIT, MIT is one of the top five programs in the country. They're one of the best shooting programs in the country. And we're one of the best defensive teams in the country that year. Defensive field goal percentage was – we were holding people at 38 39% uh, uh, field goal percentage. Uh, we were holding people in the 60s to about 64, 65 points a game uh, and all. And so we were doing a lot of great things defensively. So – and we're a big man-to-man. I'm not a big zone guy. I've never been at all, although over the last five or six years, we've implored our own – uh, something that I came up with on my own matchup zone. It's not Syracuse's. It's not anybody else's. It has its own rules that we've come up with uh, and all. It's like a man-to-man, but, uh, you know, it's more of a matchup. And so when we went on Synergy to study tape for um, um, MIT, there was nobody that played zone against them that year because they were one of the leading three-point shooting teams in the country. So we go out against MIT in the first half, and we're back and forth. We can't stop them in the first half. And with about a minute to go, maybe a minute and a half to go in the first half, you have in these in these NCAA tournament games in Division Three, there's media timeouts. You don't have media timeouts like Division One does throughout your whole year. So if you don't use them, you lose them. Uh, so I decided to take a timeout in the, near the end of the first half, and I pull a surprise to the bench, which the coaches were really surprised. We're in a, a, a you know, like a, a, a one-point game. I think we were up 41-40 at the time. And this ends up being the best decision, and what ends up happening now ends up really being the difference in the game. So in this timeout, I said to my assistants, how about we try going zone, going matchup for the last minute and a half to see what MIT is going to do with it in case we need to utilize it in the second half. 
it was just a, a, a hunch, a, something that I decided I wanted to try. And we end up turning them over. And Jimbo Long hits about a 25-foot three at the buzzer. And he gave us huge momentum and put us up by four. And at the time, you don't know that that three is going to be the difference in the game because we win the game by two. Okay? So he hits a three at the buzzer, and we turn him over and, and get that three and all. But now we get in the locker room, and we're discussing what we're going to do for the second half. And I turn around and surprise the heck out of my whole staff. I said, we're going to come back out in the matchup. I don't like the way they – I thought they did absolutely nothing with it. They weren't prepared for it. They didn't know it was coming. And I said – and now in the first half, they shot uh, – 15 for 32 from the field. They shot 47% from the first half. But from the three, they were eight for 14, 57%. Okay? I go and play zone against a shooting team in the second half, go matchup. In the second half, we hold them to 33% for the field from the second half. Now, they had 40 at halftime. They only scored 26 points in the second half. They shoot nine for 27, 33% from the floor. Four for 14 from the three, 28%. And we win this game by two. And we stayed matched up the whole second half and never came out of it. But so getting down to the nuts and bolts of this game, we're down by two with about a little over a minute to go. And they have the ball. We get a stop. And we come down. And our All-American Tommy Bonica hits a bucket to tie it up. So now we're tied with them. And they have the ball, but they can't run it out but we end up turning them over with 21 seconds left in the game. And now we call timeout. We have the ball for the last shot, and we run a play for Tommy, uh, who had just scored to tie it up. Well, Tommy, and I don't know if it was air ball or a ball that barely grazed the rim, but he got his jump shot that was heavily contested from the right elbow or just outside the right elbow that came off on the left side and Chris Mosley happened to be there for the rebound under the basket on the left side, right on the side of the backboard. And he caught it and went right back up with, with one second left. And, like, MIT thinks that, you know, they should have let the, the play go and sent the game in overtime. But he gets hammered on the play, on the putback, and they got to call a foul. I mean, this, the, the foul ends up getting called with nine-tenths of a second. Okay, and the game's tied, and Mosley's not a great foul shooter, and he makes the first free throw, and I call timeout now, and I direct him to miss the second, hit the rim and miss the second, because then it's going to ricochet off the rim, and they're going to have to grab it and throw a baseball shot 90-something feet to try to win the game, and, you know, if they win it at that point, well, good luck, for, good luck to them, but he ends up making it. Now, he can't make a free throw all year long, and I just made two. And now they get to run a play. And the problem is this. Like, you, you would think that it's so simple that, okay, just guard everybody, and even if they throw a baseball pass down, don't deflect it. Just let the kid catch it, blah, 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 whatever. Well, Tommy's afraid to foul. So they throw a baseball pass from the length of the court down to the top of the three-point line, maybe about maybe two or three feet outside the three-point line, and Tommy kind of lets the kid make a clean catch, and Tommy don't want to get a call for a foul, so he just stands there straight up with his arms up, and the kid turns around and shoots a three, 
from my angle from the bench, it looks like it's dead on going in. And we're up two, and I'm going to be sick if this thing goes because this is to go to the final four. And then it obviously misses to the left of the rim. It looked like it was going straight in, and it missed. It actually ended up being an air ball off the left side, and we are ending up going to the final four uh, for the first time since 91. And the big thing for me was that I was two points away from going to the final four in 2003, and then I was back on my court two years later in the Sweet 16, hosting the Sweet 16 in the final eight to get back to the final four. So I thought this was going to be a regular occurrence for our program. <laughs> And next thing you know, it took me 17 years to finally get back to the Final Four. So, for me, I know Pat used the game where Tommy hit the shot, and obviously it was great, and it was ESPN. But for me to get back to the Final Four and beat MIT, it ends up being the greatest game for me uh, at Rampo, strictly because it got us to the Final Four. But it was a game that was nip and tuck. Neither team could pull away. Uh, the shot that Jimbo hit before the half, we ended up winning by two, and he hits a three-pointer. So, obviously, that's the difference in the ball game, And all because we, we played zone and turned them over. And it was something that we never did. And it was just a gut, a gut reaction that I had. And, and sometimes you make these decisions and they backfire. And in this case, it got us to a Final Four. You talk about that, that gut reaction to go to zone. Had you kind of had it all day that day that, hey, if there's an important part or a part that I have a – a chance to go to this zone, I'm going to do it. Did you kind of have it in the back of your head, or did it really just come out of nowhere? It came out of nowhere. I mean, we kind of use it when we're struggling. We were a real good defensive team, and we were struggling. You know, the old saying is if you throw something enough stuff up on the wall, something's going to stick. We didn't, we're not like that. We don't have a million different gimmicks and stuff. But it was just taking a chance. We didn't guard the first half. I mean, to let up 57% from the three and 47% from the floor, we didn't guard. We let up 40 points. We were letting up like 64 or 65 a game. It was just way too many points. It was just a reaction that I had, and it ended up working. And my only regret is when we got to the final four, we were down five with six minutes to go to Wisconsin Oshkosh, and I didn't have the testicular fortitude to do it again. Because if I would have, I should have taken – they shoot the ball really well, just like MIT. And I had it in that game. I had the onions to do it in that game. And I didn't have it in the Oshkosh game. And we ended up – they ended up against our man hitting three threes in a row. And a five- or six-point game went to 15, ball game over. We lose by 15 and the season's over. So I just wish that I would have tried it in the Oshkosh game because – we hung in there the whole way. They were a much bigger team than we were uh, and all. We, didn't, we weren't at our best that night offensively, and I just wish I would have tried it in the final four. Uh, and, and like we said before, sometimes you make this quick knee-jerk reaction and it works, and then other times you're afraid to make it. And, and, you know, and I don't know if it would have worked, but I wish I would have tried it. Brian, I'm going to interrupt you here before you jump in. This is – you can tell – Coach has been a long-time coach because just looking at the stats, he has mentioned about eight different times that MIT shot 46 or 47% in the first half. Ramapo shot 63% in the first half. But they were doing <laughs> yeah, something right we, on we the were, other end. We were 19 for 30 in the first half. I don't want to talk to you about that. That's because if you look, take a look at the difference in the threes in the game. They took 28 and we took five. 
Yeah. You know, my big thing is getting to the rim and getting to the free throw line. And in the game, we took 13 free throws to their six. So at the end of the day, we got to the free throw line two to, two to one to the eight dude. And you're not getting to the free throw line shoot threes. You're going to get yep. to the free throw line going to the basket. So you know you've seen my, us play and my philosophy. I've gotten away in my early part of my career. I was big on the three, and we've really gotten away from it. And I think it's won a lot of games for us because we have a philosophy and a saying that let them fire away, they're going to shoot themselves into a loss. And, and a lot of teams do that. We've played a lot of teams over the last number of years that were better than us, and they just shot themselves into loss. When you look at the end of the night, they're five for 30 from the three, and they just keep firing in that mentality that the next one's going to go in. The next one never has to go in. And I tell my team, if you go with that mentality, you'll be sitting next to me. It's a fascinating box score here. We pulled it up. Both Chris and I are looking at it here. 42 points in the paint for you guys and scored 68 total and 23 points off of turnovers. Now I'm now my question for you is were they turning the ball? Were that that, that points off of turnovers that mostly in the second half out of the zone or is that mostly in the first half? I'm just really curious about that number. Uh, I'm, I'm not positive. I, I would probably say it was balanced. I think in the game we only had 11 turnovers. We really took care of the ball and I think they had 15 or 16 in the game. So at the end of the day, you know, there's certain stats that we want to win. Uh, obviously, you know, free throws attempted. Uh, we want to make more free throws than they attempt. Um, you know, we want to get on a free throw line. Obviously, by, in order to do that, you got to take less threes. We want to win the rebound, and we did not in that game, but we only lost by a couple uh, and all. We won the turnover battle uh, and all. So, you know, at the end of the day, we did just enough to get to the Final Four that night. And MIT is a great program. So it was a great win for us. And probably, you know, you talk about, you know, when people talk about the greatest wins, they talk about, you know, a specific shot like Pat did. But for me, it's a game that got us to the Final Four. You do a great job of, of explaining the last couple of seconds, too. We found a video we'll post in the show notes as well of Mosley hitting a free throw, and it's almost like he's shocked that he makes it. Like, oh, man. And then they inbound it, and it's almost like a Leitner fall away. It's a good look. And you're right with Tommy just with his hands up, like, oh, boy. And it's a good – it's a pretty good clean look. <laughs> and it, I'm telling you, and I'm not making this up, and I'm not exaggerating. If you are standing from where I was, the angle I had, he was on a total opposite – uh, side of the floor towards the wing on the right side of their uh, floor and opposite me and the angle at it looked it looked like it was a dead swish and it missed the rim completely but you know and your heart just stops your heart just stops it's like you know like when when you see things in instant replay and slow motion stuff it looked like that ball was in the air for like 10 seconds just going towards the net and and when it finally missed it was just uh, probably the greatest feeling that I've ever experienced in, in uh, basketball as a player or a coach. That's awesome. Now, do you find your wife right away, coach, after the win? What do you do? You know, I, I'm a lot like, I think, uh, like Jay Wright. You saw Jay Wright's reaction when he, when they wanted, he didn't jump, he didn't go running like Jimmy V uh, at all. If you ever get to see this video and uh, all, Steve, my assistant, does the best Jimmy V impersonation ever, and not on purpose. He is just so elated that we're going to the Final Four. He's running around the gym looking for somebody, somebody to hug, somebody to hold, somebody to do something. And I just gave, like, a little fist, like, yes, we, we accomplished, you know, getting to the Final Four. Uh, and, and then I walked down and shaked uh, uh, the hand. And then, yes, then I searched out for my wife. 
and, and, and there were obviously, you know, some great emotions there. And then, you know, I tell my players all the time, one of the reasons you come to Round Pro is to cut down nets and there's no feeling like it. And like you cut down a net when you win the conference championship. And then obviously you cut down a net if you advance to the final four and you cut down a net if you win a national championship. So there's three possible net cuttings during the course of a year. And any one of them is, is spectacular and there's no feeling like it. And, you know, it never gets old. I, I really enjoy that part of it. And I, I would, I wish that every kid that comes to play for me within their four years at least gets an opportunity to do that once. That, that's, that's very special for me, uh, for them. All right, Coach. Uh, we like to end here on a little bit of a fun question. And I, I've been around you. I know you have plenty of sayings. So if I asked the kid who played for you that first year at Ramapo and I asked someone who played for you this year at Ramapo, what would they say is the one thing Coach McBreen always says over and over again? Now, I know you have one that's got a bad word in it. No, I'm not going to use the one that Gabriel steals. Yeah. Let's, let's, talk, let's backtrack for a minute. Gabriel stole both of them from me. You know? so, so, but that's okay because I had so many of them. No. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of things because not just one. Um, the, the first one that is real big in our program and, and that I expect them to leave with these three words. The three words that we live by in our program is unselfishness, toughness, and relentlessness, right? So we have them on the whiteboard in our locker room. They stay up there all year. When Right before we take uh, the floor, I mentioned those three words right when we're leaving the locker room. Right before we take the floor, I write them again on our little whiteboard by the bench to remind them of those three words before they take the floor. Uh, and all. And then one, uh, another thing that we say, the only stat that matters in our entire program is 1-0 and on game day. You can throw out all the other stats. I don't care how many points, how many rebounds, how many assists. I don't care about any of that. If we went 1-0, and we accomplished what we wanted to that night. And if you come to my program, you better be playing, being unselfish and playing for 1-0 and playing for everybody else in that locker room because nothing else matters. I can't stand the player that is going to tell you about all his numbers and I did my job and I helped my man and I did this when it's a team sport and the only number that matters at the end of the night uh, is one and all. And then the last thing I'll say is I tell players that too many players aren't willing to sacrifice what they want most for what they want at the moment. And what I mean by that is you take a player, like we talk about sacrificing is so important in order to be successful in college. And I'll use the word partying as a sacrifice. If you want to be special and all, then you need to give that up during the season and sacrifice for our team. And too many players go out the night before a game or two nights before a game. And, and, and we talk about if what we want most is a conference championship and an NCAA berth, then why are you sacrificing what you want most for what you want at the moment, which is that party to be out there socializing around the females and, and, and you know, getting wasted or whatever the case may be. Like, so we, we tell our players, you have to be willing to sacrifice uh, and all. And if it's truly, if what you want uh, most is a conference championship, then you need to make that sacrifice for our program. So, and if those people make that sacrifice, that's an unselfish person who wants to be one and all. So those are the, the, you know, the kind of things that we talk about in the culture that we built in our program. 
Coach, that, that is an absolute exclamation point to an unbelievable episode. You're one over 400 games, and right there, I was going to ask the question earlier, we just never really got to it. But, like, that is the culture that you've created at Ramapo and just being able to sacrifice and having being able to be, bring guys in that, that fit that mold. Like, I'm just – I'm I'm a fan. I've, I've been a fan for a long time. Just listening to Chris talk about you, and then me getting to meet Pat virtually, and now to get to hear you talk for an hour about your program and a great game. It's, this has been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure, and just I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been awesome. No, thank you. And those 400 wins would have never happened with all the great players that we've had and the great assistants like Pat Gabriel and Trevor and the guys that I've had for me. They work so hard, and at this level, they get paid peanuts. And, and, and they do it for the love of the game. And obviously I'm passionate about the game of basketball, but they're just as passionate because they're not getting paid uh, nothing, uh, you know, in order to put the hours. And at the college level, it's a 12-month commitment. So I'm thankful and blessed to have those kind of guys, you know, on my staff and the players that I've had come through my program. Well, I'll tell you, you've got a big fan. I've, I've messaged Brett Carey during the show, and his first answer when I told him we were interviewing right now, he said, my man. He's a great coach, great guy, super genuine. He, he loves you too. So uh, I know if you've at least got one fan, but I know you've got a lot of fans of the kids that have played for you. So well, Tell him I said hello because I miss Brett. I, I wish every kid worked as hard as Brett did. And he deserved a better fate at Western Carolina. That's right. Well, he, he's the best. He's got a bright future ahead of him. He's already had a great future or a great career coaching-wise, and then the sky's the limit for him. But, Coach, we could talk forever, but we're going to go ahead and button up this one here. Maybe we can have you back sometime in the future talk a little bit more. This has been fantastic. But, like I said, we'll go ahead and end this one right now. So, for my co-host, Chris de Blasio, I am Brian Rosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Game.